You're listening to Vernacular Podcast. All right, welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. And we're excited for this episode. We're going to talk about The Crown with Jordan and Catherine. Yeah, we started watching The Crown when it first came out in January, and then, well, actually, I did, and then we rewatched it together most recently in October or November. And yeah, so that was when I was on the road, and you were watching this. You watched it with your family, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. And you kept telling me this was amazing yeah. and really good, and we needed to see it. And I was, uh, I guess I was intrigued, but skeptical. Yeah. And then we finally saw it together a month ago or so. Yeah. And I loved it. It's great. And there's so much to talk about. But we'll get we'll get to all that. I don't want to to spoil that. But we're doing this because the new season is coming out on December eighth. So right. in just a few days, season two of The Crown Friday. is dropping, and it's because Friday. it's Netflix, it's dropping in binge mode. So you'll be able to watch all of it if you want. <laughs> if you want, or you can. I really want to um, uh, imbibe it slowly. <laughs> yeah, that's the Zach and Zach and Sally viewing plan. You know, we don't even watch a full movie. In a night anymore. Like, <laughs> it's like I, three nights. When was the last time we watched a full movie in one night? I don't know. I just don't have the stamina for it, honestly. But also for something like The Crown, I just want to savor it and I want to – I don't want it to be over too soon. Here's the thing though. It's not really about stamina. Less people think that we're like going to bed at 8 p.m. It's really about oh, like right. how no, I mean, we like, choose to spend the two and a half hours or so that we have between sure. – our girls' bedtime and our bedtime. But I also feel like I just can't sit there and watch something. I just get restless or something, bored. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So it's not like you're falling asleep. It's just like oh, yeah, you want right. to do other things. Yeah, I don't mean stamina in terms of yeah energy, I guess. Um, but I will say, speaking of a show that we did watch a little bit more quickly than normal, Stranger Things. We haven't really talked about that on the podcast before, but we finally joined the Stranger Things train. We well, I mean, if by join the train you you mean that we, we watched, watched it. it, then yes, we joined <laughs> That's the train. What I mean, if we hopped aboard the Stranger Things hype train, right. I would say. Right. We did not. Yes, that's true. We should talk about that in a future episode, too. Yes. Just no, like I've already had our thoughts, thoughts on Stranger about that. Things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, we finished season two over Thanksgiving break at my parents' house. Here's the summary of my thoughts Season one, good. Season two, mediocre. <laughs> Less good. <laughs> Neither is great. Yeah. The, yeah. But that's, I guess we don't even need to do an episode now. That's, we've, we've covered it. <laughs> Spoiler. Well, okay, so totally different topic, Sally, but I have a question for you. So December 6th, Wednesday, this is Monday as we're talking, Time is Time Magazine is going to announce its person of the year. Who do you think will be the Time Magazine person of the year for 2017? Okay, so before I say who I think, I'll just tell you my thought process. First, I had to remind myself that the person of the year is not necessarily the most heroic or right. the greatest yes. person or the best person in a kind of a moral sense so then i thought maybe trump because he's i mean obviously captured everyone's attention for a year but he was the person of the year last he just did that so i don't think that he should be the person of the year it's just sort of unoriginal to give it to the same person twice in a row and i'm just so bored with him that i don't want him to be the person of the year sure so then i was thinking maybe someone related to all of these assault scandals and then i thought maybe harvey weinstein because he had kind of kicked that off yeah that's a good thought and I wonder, would there be a way to do a more positive spin on that? No, not even positive, but instead of framing one of the perpetrators, framing the victims. Like right. I know that that's what I mean. A more positive spin in that I don't really want him to be the time person of the year because he's so horrible. Right. So maybe there's a way to highlight and re- remember, kind of commemorate 
the fact that this happened without putting, again, more media attention on the perpetrators. Right. Like maybe um, the person of the year could be the survivor, like the the sexual assault survivor. Yeah, that would be cool. Yeah, just like kind of the – so not a particular survivor, but survivors in general. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I I know they've done those before. They've they've definitely gone non-conventional. I know that um, like in 2003, it was the American soldier. I think in 2006, the person of the year was you, like – Oh. The person reading Time magazine. <laughs> that I don't seems know. like a cop-out. It was definitely a cop-out. That's boring. Uh, 2011 was the protester um, oh, because of the Arab Spring and how it was oh, yeah. started yeah. in each country yeah. by protests, essentially. Yeah. Originally by Mohamed Bouazizi in Tunisia, but in each country following, there were protesters that launched government reforms or in some yeah. cases. Yeah, so then it would not be completely unheard of to say, yeah, it's the, the yeah. all the people who right. have – Revealed or not revealed that they were the victims of sexual right, assault. Right. Um, I think another option would be um, Vladimir Putin because of all the uh, question, all the intrigue, perhaps we could say, surrounding not just the campaign, but also uh, the you know possible meddling of Russia in the highest levels of government. Right, right. Maybe uh, Kim Jong-un because of all the, oh, yeah. all the North Korea nuclear, nuclear discussions. Stuff? Yeah. Yeah, those are some of my thoughts. But I agree with you, I think. Or maybe also, uh, speaking of survivors, hurricane survivors from all of the hurricanes. Right. Or maybe the hurricane could be the prison of the year. <laughs> would that be weird? I don't – I don't... That's, that's kind of too strange. Yeah. <laughs> that would be too out, too far out. Yeah, okay. Forget I said that. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's um, – I guess we'll, we'll find out. Yeah. I did see – this is sort of late breaking, but I did see that Time released its finalists for person of the year. Oh, okay. Um, so now that we've had this discussion, let's see let's see how close we are. Let's see who we've forgotten about. So they've narrowed down the list of possible candidates for us. Yeah, I I guess so. So I'm confused on this because I thought this was only an internal, like editorial decision that oh, the time you need to people. Vote? Well, I, it's not really clear to me because if they're releasing like finalists, like yeah, I thought that they didn't comment on it until it was all decided and there was a person oh, of the year but okay. maybe they're crowdsourcing it a little bit or maybe they're just revealing their own internal shortlist not really clear okay but let's see um uh, so how times many shortlist for person of the year is here let's see who we have time.com here's the shortlist you ready yeah and this is a great time to have internet problems so okay here we go in alphabetical order jeff bezos the dreamers Patty Jenkins, that's the Wonder Woman director. Okay. Kim Jong-un. Oh, look at that. Colin Kaepernick. The Me Too movement. Sally's on point. Robert Mueller, the special counsel uh, investigating uh, charges of collusion. Oh. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman, which we mentioned. Donald Trump, which you mentioned, Sally. Ah. Whom, who, whom you mentioned? Right? Yes. The, whom you mentioned. Uh, Xi Jinping of China. And that's it. Okay. So we got a few of those. Yeah. We'll see what happens. I, my, my vote is with the Me Too movement, though. Yeah. I bet that's what it will be. Yeah, I think that would be a good Time choice. will tell. We'll see. In the meantime, let's talk about The Crown. All right. Welcome back to Vernacular Podcast. We're joined on this episode by Jordan and Catherine Short. Guys, welcome back to the show. Thank you for nice. having us. So we thought we could talk about The Crown, which is Netflix's well one of Netflix's newest greatest hits it's a Netflix original series it came out last November or December in 2016 
the uh, first season is 10 episodes long, and the new season's coming out on December 8th, so right around the corner. Woohoo! We're pretty excited about it. And the first season was really impressive. It got a lot of good reviews. It had a breathtakingly large budget for a Netflix original of $100 million, and that speaks to the show's technical uh, abilities to impress, the amazing screenplay, the incredible acting, a lot of things to be impressed about this series, and there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I know you guys enjoyed it, uh, watched it, have a lot to talk about as well, so I just thought we'd get things going on that discussion. Let's do it. Maybe I'll take a step back, and just for listeners who've maybe not seen the show, I'll just do a brief synopsis. So the show starts off with the reign of George VI, who was Elizabeth's father. Um, he ascended to the throne originally because Edward VIII, who was his brother, abdicated because Edward VIII fell in love with an American uh, who had been divorced. And the laws of England prevented, I think actually still do prevent, a monarch from marrying a uh, divorced person. So he abdicated the throne so that he could marry. Um, renounced his title, renounced actually his family ties to the Windsors, and that led to George VI's accession to the throne, making Elizabeth, as the eldest daughter of George VI, first in line for the throne. So then when George VI was diagnosed with lung cancer and then eventually died in February of 52, Elizabeth II ascends to the throne and is only, I think, 25 years old, extraordinarily young, never thought she would be exceeding... rising to the throne at this age, if ever, newly married to Philip, Duke of Edinburgh. And the series is basically her wrestling with this new responsibility, hence the name The Crown, because she's dealing with the weight of the crown, and figuring out exactly what a monarch in modern times is supposed to be, and trying to balance family priorities with political priorities, with national priorities, um, and doing all of these things as, again, a 25, 26, 27-year-old, the, the series spans a couple of years of her life. Um, and it's a very compelling and interesting watch, especially, I think, for Americans like us who don't have a monarchy in our sort of political uh, lineage. Uh, political consciousness maybe would be a better word. It, it led to, to Sally and I having a lot of just sort of sofa discussions as we were watching it about um, the crown as a as an entity, as an idea, uh, having a monarchy, etc. And I think maybe a good question to segue into would, would be, would you want the crown? So I think a lot of times we look at this a story like this and um, think that there'd be lots of people who would want that because all of a sudden they're one of the most powerful people in the world. But on second thought, she gave up a lot, sacrificed a lot of personal priorities for it. And it's not really a powerful position. Well, in many respects, it's not really a powerful position. I think there's a lot of symbolic authority that comes with it, and there's a there's a sort of soft power in that. You could certainly argue, and I would. But she doesn't command an army. Um, she's the head of a church, but uh, notionally, really. Uh, she's the head of state, but not the head of government, so she doesn't enact or legislate. Um, she takes advice from her ministers, but doesn't... Uh, doesn't actually actively rule in a political sense. So at the same time, even though she doesn't have any of those actual powers, she has all the responsibility of being a head of state. And that cuts into time with her family, especially with her husband and her children. Throughout the the series, you see a a significant conflict with her sister come up over her sister's um, romantic intentions. And it just made the crown look like 
not a very good thing to have. So would you guys want the crown? And maybe we can just sort of use that as a launching point for discussion. And by want the crown, are you saying if it was given to you, would you accept it? Yeah, so maybe let me So rephrase. would you act like her father or like Elizabeth or her uncle who right. abdicates? Right, so do you accept, mm-hmm. right, so if you're, if you're first in line, right, do you accept or do you abdicate? I think if I was in that family, right, like the, the, this premise is if we were in the family, right? Like if we right. like yeah, be her you are, father. You're a Windsor, Jordan Windsor. Yes, right, right, or her uncle. Um, definitely I would accept it, like 100%. Okay. Not not in a in a headstrong or necessarily excited frame of mind, but in a dutiful frame of mind. I think probably similar to Elizabeth. Um, like I'm the oldest kid in my family. I'm an Enneagram one, which is which is a reformer <laughs> slash Enneagram one wing two, which is also uh, the two is a helper. So like I would view it um, in a way to try to help society improve. Um, and I would probably try to take on responsibilities like like Diana did, right? Like she did a lot of things that helped her country in the world through raising awareness and and using her position to uh, bring money and assistance to people in places that needed it. I think that's what I would that's what I would do. I don't think I'd be doing my country any favors by abdicating. Um, yeah, Elizabeth's uncle was kind of a a dingus, really. <laughs> He's an interesting character Very to selfish. watch, though. I mean, I, I think he had some of the most interesting monologues in the whole series when he would sort of wax eloquent about the crown and the symbolic power that it holds for the British people. This is yet the man who abdicated the throne in a moment that that mattered most. And then there's that conversation at the very end of the series where he talks on the phone with Elizabeth and basically tells her he knows what burden it is that she bears, but that she must bear it. And he's the mm-hmm. one, he's the one who could not bear it. Mm-hmm. I loved, I loved him as a character. Yeah. You know, I say he's a dingus, but I, no, he was a I great thought, foil, right? Isn't right. That but he was a great foil. Term? Oh my God. Yeah. So good. So Catherine, what about you? Would you take the crown? I think one would hope that they would be able to rise to the occasion if it happened. Yeah, I was thinking that too. I think, yeah. I don't know. I hope that I would say yes. But yeah, I think I would be very intimidated by it. Jordan talked about personalities. It definitely would not be in my personality to want to be the head of the British Empire. <laughs> so, mm. but faced with the choice of abdication, I think I would would take right well and elizabeth's father i mean he was not groomed to become king no and i think such an interesting backstory is the movie the king's speech that he was Mm -hmm. the same king who was a stutterer and couldn't Mm -hmm. even really speak a line without stuttering and yet he takes on that mantle and i mean at least his wife thinks he died because of it Mm -hmm. let me ask a really american question of you guys though okay so does does the monarchy need to exist here? Because we're, in, in answering the question about whether or not you would take the crown, I think you're 
assuming that the crown is somehow vital to the continued health of the state. But is it actually? I mean, maybe, maybe this is just a really American perspective to have, but we don't have a king in America. Right. And so I think this is one of the reasons why we find the series so fascinating because, wow, like, what is this? I mean, same thing with the royal wedding, right? We watch the royal wedding and, like, this is just such a strange concept to watch. I mean, the most comparable thing I think would be to have the the wedding of two very prominent, you know, Southern California Hollywood music stars or something like uh, Jay-Z and Beyonce. So I don't know, like this this fascination with a with an entity, with a person is very foreign to us. And each time in the series that Elizabeth II is told, you have to do this or else basically the whole kingdom will be imperiled. I just think, really? Like, like so a great example here, right? When Tommy, her outgoing private secretary, tells her that she must accept the except as his replacement the second in line private secretary instead of the third in line who was formerly her private secretary as um, princess mm-hmm. that if she didn't do that basically the kingdom would be imperiled and I was just thinking like really that's it's that significant like the 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 stability of the crown and the fact that nothing ever changes here is that. Uh, that germane to the continued health of the British kingdom. I, I don't know. Yeah, or like Philip and Elizabeth's controversy over her coronation ceremony, how he yes. wanted to kind of democratize everything. And, and he did. He brought in TV cameras, which is the first time that had ever happened. Um, funny little tidbit, it remains to this day the only coronation ever filmed because Elizabeth II is still queen. <laughs> <laughs> I think that... Going back to, you know, choosing the second in command over third in command, I think it does go back to her uncle, though, you know, because they're saying, well, when you start going outside the lines, things begin to fall apart and look what happened. You know, someone had to literally leave the family. Right. But I mean, but but look what happened. He abdicated. A new king came in his place and... Uh, they won World War Two, right? Yeah, she was I mean, like, I think, is the outcome that bad? Right. I mean, so like, does mm-hmm. it actually imperil yeah. the kingdom if a monarch says, "No, I'll pass, thanks"? Well, I think you know there was a lot of history that was bogging down a lot of those kind of decisions, you know. And now there's a better perspective. Yes, I mean, yes, obviously, there's still a lot of tradition and history surrounding the monarch, but I think. I, mean, I think we're we're talking about two different things now, right? Like, are we talking about is the monarch vital and important, or are we talking about a lot of the seemingly backwards traditions that certain countries slash political systems have, right? Like, because in America we have some backwards political systems too that we still keep. We could talk about the Electoral College, right? <laughs> okay, that was set up for a thing back in the day, and now it's really not that applicable. Okay, so maybe the question is, I think that Zach's trying to get at, is the monarchy and, I guess we can just say, the crown, right. as it is conveyed in the mini ser- in the series, necessary? So meaning that we have Churchill telling 
Elizabeth that no one can see the real Elizabeth Windsor. They only have to see the eternal. So is that version of the crown necessary to continue? Because if it isn't, and then he gets mad at Margaret and he says she shatters that illusion and, and she's allowing personality to come through. Is that version of the crown really necessary? Because if it's not, then we can have someone abdicate. We can have you know, Margaret marry a divorcee. We can have Philip democratize the coronation and Elizabeth choose Martin as her private secretary. Mm-hmm. But if it is, then none of those things can happen and we have to just keep pushing forward. Elizabeth Windsor must die and, you know, Elizabeth Regina has to be the one to come to the front. Yeah, and it's interesting because Philip takes the opposite tack in this and in his whole point. So Churchill, as Sally just said, is saying the Elizabeth must disappear, only the queen remains and the crown and only the eternal and this is what the people must see. And Philip really says, no, actually, you need to be more accessible. This is why we need TV cameras in your coronation because they need to connect with Elizabeth of Windsor. Otherwise, you become irrelevant. Otherwise, you become irrelevant. And this is a, you know, we have a changing society. We're becoming more democratized. We're becoming more egalitarian, et cetera. Um, And so I kind of wonder if Philip is right. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I think I think Philip is right, you know, but but we're are we saying is it important for England right now to have the monarchy or, to, or are we talking about which version of the monarchy? No, I think we're talking about which version of the monarchy. OK, OK, mm-hmm. because there's, there's basically the Winston Churchill theory or the Philip theory. OK, and I think the Philip theory allows for the possibility of abdication to be less. Mm-hmm damaging to the kingdom so if you were if someone offered you the crown you could abdicate without worrying that the whole thing would just come collapsing on its head right and i think philip yeah i agree i I think philip is right you know and we've seen that even with like with diana diana totally he had a more modern view yes of at least how it's portrayed in the series, he was sort of propelling forward. You know, people can handle more than we're giving them. They can handle a little bit more information and probably Mm -hmm. still accept us. Well, and all the crazy things that Charles has done. And then, you know, I mean, the crown is resilient. And I think that's what Philip was getting at. Mm -hmm. And the more open you can be, the better. You know, I, I, I think this series is accurately named after its main character. And and that is the crown. The crown is the main character of this show. It is a a silent but ever-present powerful force. And I think it's not Elizabeth, it's not Winston, right? It's it's what is the crown. And you see that conversation from the very first episode where uh, Elizabeth's father and Philip are going out hunting and they have this conversation uh, as they're hunting for, for geese, if I remember correctly. And it's all about all about what the crown is and how you serve it. And that's the whole, that's the series to me. So we say maybe Philip's right about how the crown should change. But then would you accept the crown and and try to enact those kinds of changes? Or would you feel that tension that Elizabeth feels between kind of Winston Churchill and his cronies and 
and Philip, her husband. Do you think that Elizabeth is kind of bringing all of this extra pressure on top of herself or that, you know, that she doesn't actually need to feel this kind of stress, that she should just be okay with letting the crown evolve and, and change? I can, I can start here. So I think that it's easy for Philip to say what he does and think the way he does from his position, right? Mm -hmm. There's the, the common adage where you stand depends on where you sit. And it's easy for Philip to do that because he, even though he's married to the crown, he's still an outside observer in that he doesn't actually wear the crown physically or metaphorically. And it's easy for him to say, this is what my theory of the crown is. This is what you need to be. You need to be accessible to the people. We need to make sure your face is broadcast and the coronation. But it's a lot harder for her to do that when she's the one who will be remembered by history for the changes she does or does not make. And on top of that, all of her closest advisors, from her private secretary to, private secretary to the head of her government in uh, Churchill, are telling her, do not do these things because they will be absolutely devastating. And she's 25 years old at this point. And also, we learn in the series, has been woefully uneducated for the purpose of this position. And so she, I think really, I, I certainly don't fault her at all for going with the advice of the most experienced and learned people around her. In that sense, I resonate with her decisions a lot because... She assumes all the risk for them, whereas Philip can say whatever he likes, and history won't remember him as the Duke of Edinburgh that changed the monarchy, but it certainly will remember her as the queen. At the same time, I think we've already talked about how I, I do, how Philip's theory of the monarchy definitely resonates with me, and I, I think, again, that's distinctly American, and so I can't say that if I was a, a Briton and I had grown up under the crown that I would necessarily agree with Philip in the same way that I do from my vantage point today from this continent. So minor factual sidestep here. Does anyone know why Elizabeth was so woefully uneducated? That did not make sense to me throughout the entire series because at first I was thinking, oh, well, how would they know that she was going to have to ascend the throne? Well, they did know. They knew from as soon as her father became king that once he died, she was next in line, right? And he was king for 16 years. So why wasn't her education kind of stepped up so that she would be prepared to take the throne? Right, because when she was around the age of nine, they they learned, oh, you're the heir apparent now because your father's the new king. Yeah, mm-hmm. but then I guess as I'm saying that, I'm also remembering that conversation she has with her mother where her mother says, you received the best education and you're supposed to be, what does she say, like a, just like a figurehead rather than... Essentially, yeah. So I don't know. What do you guys think? Do you think that that was the education they intended or that they dropped the ball? I'm not really sure. That conversation made me think it was the education they intended. I think so, too. That f- At least her education as a child was a little questionable, but I really just don't think anybody expected. I think they all thought, you know, you've got another 15 years to learn under your father. But, you know, how much of our high school and college education in the United States of America prepares us for actual grown-up adult life? Good point. (laughs) There's there's not much, you know? And so she was learning Latin and mathematics and some government stuff, right? But, But also, you know, her father 
or even her uncle wasn't prepared for World War II, you know? Like, there's just certain things about life that schooling doesn't prepare you for. And I think probably that's that's what I heard from her. When she's like, well, why didn't you teach me about this stuff? And the mom was like, you learned what you were supposed to learn according to how we've always done things. Right, according to know? the customs and traditions of mm-hmm. the monarchy. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it seemed as though, you know, her father was ramping up, okay, you need to... I'm going to, you know, dole out certain responsibilities to you, but, you know. That education was kind of cut short when he died. Right. But, you know, I mean, I think he was 56 when he passed away. And, you know, at that time, I don't know how much they really knew. Okay. They, you know, he had surgery, you know, the lung transplant. And maybe they thought, oh, we, you know, we're going to get another five years out of them. You right. know, right. You know, you're going to really be able to learn a lot in these next five years. Sure. I mean, she was busy uh, getting married and then having kids. It was probably a little, they were being naive, you know, with with his health. Yeah. For sure, yeah. So Winston Churchill features very prominently in this series. He's the prime minister of England his second time around. So this is post-war And uh, this is Churchill's sort of last hurrah in public life. And he's the last lion, right? And we all the stuff that we hear about Winston Churchill tends to be from the World War II period when he was the last lion leading Britain against the onslaught of the Nazis and the Third Reich. Uh, But the series, to me, portrays Churchill in a much dimmer light. It portrays his age. Uh, him creeping towards decrepitude, his ill health, and his orneriness. And his, I was going to say, yeah, like maybe least flatteringly, his temperament. So um, for me, I think it changed a little bit of the way I, I view this guy. Uh, what about you? Did you did this series change the way you viewed Winston Churchill? For me, it didn't. Um, I, I don't think in the ways that you're describing, uh, in, in the sense of it being um, less than flattering. For me, it actually endeared him even more uh, to me Um, because, you know, he's described as the bulldog. And so his orneriness is really a part of what made him a great leader, especially in a wartime scenario. And so that element of his character was interesting to see in a situation where it wasn't wartime. I loved his interactions in the television show with his wife. Um, I loved the interactions with his staff. Um, I loved his interactions with Queen Elizabeth herself, um, his, his service to her and the crown, um, were really, were really endearing because I think sometimes history has a tendency or when we look at history, we have a tendency to elevate people. Um, and strip away um, the human element and just want to paint them in a particular, you know, facet. But I found this show, in it's showing multiple facets of him to be really wonderful. I, I don't know. Yeah, so I appreciated the realistic picture of Winston Churchill, that he wasn't painted, as you say, kind of with golden lenses or whatever that phrase is. Um, but I guess two, these aren't the only things that stuck out to me, but two things 
were really stuck out to me as criticisms of his character, I guess. One was when you mentioned you mentioned his relation with his staff. Well, they just had that kind of little scene where he 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 gets a new staff member and it's a woman and she's younger and pretty and he just kind of makes this like sexist comment about her which I suppose is kind of part of the times like my grandfather is like that but uh but he just kind of made like a little sexist comment about about the way she looked and that he approved of her because of the way she looked and but then I guess even bigger for me as a criticism goes is how he acted in that one episode that was all about the weather do you guys remember that when it was what it was the the fog that was coming in but the Mm -hmm. fog um was actually deadly um and so but he was just the only thing he cared about during that whole episode until the end when the same staff member the cute girl that he liked dies he was the fact that prince philip was flying and wanting to fly and t- doing risky things with flying and so i thought i just thought that whole episode for me just really opened my eyes as to how winston is not perfect i mean he he was obviously wonderful during world war ii but maybe he at this point he was just like past his prime and kind of couldn't mm-hmm. really get with the times in accepting that you know fog might not just be fog Right. See, I don't equate perfection with endearment. You know, like fair, I hear what fair. you're saying. I, I, I actually thought that all that stuff was very powerful, right? Like those examples you just mentioned with the fog and even his comment toward the young uh, new staff member, right? Like those were not good things. But seeing him as a human being was like, oh, okay, right. Like, the heroes of history are also human, just like us, you know, and I found it to be just like so amazing to witness. Now, you could also say, well, how much of that was actually factual and how, how much of it was. Right. Yeah. And that's my question. Right. Like, like created for the show. And we did do some research into some of those things, like the fog scenario and all yeah. that stuff. Yeah, so do but, we. <laughs> but like, I don't know. I just you're totally right, Sally, that it's not good you know (laughs) but i just i was like wow this is powerful you know well to see and it's also we're viewing queen elizabeth becoming queen you know extremely young in her field and then on the opposite end we're viewing winston churchill at the tail end of his career Mm -hmm. so some of that i don't know if that was purposeful but the it's contrast like, is the contrast, intense. you know, is interesting. Okay, so December 8th, the new season comes out. Before we wrap things up, what are you guys hoping to see? Apart from obviously what happens in history, but what do you hope that this, where you're going to see in the second season? What are you looking forward to? Well, the second season will have a new prime minister, won't it? Yes, uh, Anthony Eden, right? Yeah, so I'm excited to see that development. And this is the last season with Claire Foy as the queen. Supposedly. So. Which is so sad. I don't think I'll be able to keep watching. (laughs) I know. Yes, we should say, you know, his original intent was to have six seasons. Who's he? The creator. Yes. Um, six seasons spanning 
essentially kind of like a decade-ish a season, I think. Okay, that's helpful to know. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. So I they, mean, have, so they have to swap out actors and actresses as they go. Right, the yeah. Timeline changes. Right, yes. Oh, so it's not that Claire Foy couldn't do it. It's that they. Queen Elizabeth's going to be too old for Claire Foy. Right, right they're going to age. The actors will age as the season goes on. Okay. And so they're going to. Sorry, as the series goes on. And so by the end of it, you know, it'll be a little bit more like present day. Right. Right. So that'll be interesting. Yeah, that'll but. be really interesting. I guess Diana and Prince Charles. Mm-hmm. I'm such an American too. I'm excited to see more of the drama surrounding Princess Margaret. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like this, this whole uh, Townsend nonsense yeah. ended. But, like I've I've researched this uh, fairly extensively since we've been watching The Crown, and like there's a lot more drama coming up. So I'm pretty excited to watch all that play out. Well, and I think that at least on the Netflix the crown instagram account they're playing oh they're teasing they're hoping, yeah because they know their audience yeah is they keep showing yeah. these pictures of margaret with a new guy oh. so yeah we'll see what what happens then i guess she although to be guy. fair i guess this is not a uniquely american phenomenon because the whole point in the series was like how much this captured the imagination of the british people too right right, right. Mm-hmm. Like the people are on our side was right the common rallying cry of margaret yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think we can't forget the tabloid culture in England, right? right. <laughs> they are they are possibly even more fascinated with all of these shenanigans than we are, right? They they read about it every day, um, and it sells newspapers. So I I think it's it's more universal, you know? Yeah, definitely. I I don't know. I just I loved this show so much for the human qualities. And the interactions that were super fleshed out between uh, the main characters. And I just am excited to see more of that happen. Yeah, completely. It, it just, you realize that everyone is people too, you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and I, think, I think that's even the most famous and wealthy are, are just like us. And I think that's what's so powerful. Well, that's what um, Philip wanted, right? The, the, the crown, the Netflix, the crown is doing what Philip wanted with Elizabeth's coronation ceremony. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. well, well, Jordan, I'm going to jump on that point real quick, maybe as a, just a final closing discussion that we can have. So you mentioned the interactions between the main characters and earlier in our conversation, you talked about the portrayal of Churchill and my favorite episode, I think in the series so far was the episode, I think it's the penultimate episode, so the second to last, in which Parliament commissions a painting, a portrait of Churchill. And he's very flattered because this is the first time that Parliament has ever commissioned a portrait of a prime minister in the way that they have for him. And they've commissioned this from a guy named Graham Sutherland, who uh, was an English modernist. And Churchill is, uh, as many of our listeners may know, was a very accomplished painter. Um, I think he did a lot of Impressionism, and he was skeptical of this modernist doing his portrait um, because he criticized modernism for for being too accurate. And when he meets his portrait uh, artist, Graham Sutherland, he has a lot of discussions with him and basically says um, that he's afraid of the modernist work being too accurate. Um, and the and Sutherland responds that accuracy is what you sh- should strive for. And Churchill says no accuracy. Essentially says accuracy is way overrated. I never let accuracy get in the way of truth. In other words, um, sometimes the art, the task of the artist is to portray truth, even if it's not 
exactly what you would see looking in a mirror. And I thought that was really a really profound discussion. And then in the course of his portrait sittings, which you see throughout this episode, Churchill gets into this dialogue with Sutherland. And in a way, I feel like it's Churchill sort of having a dialogue with himself. Mm -hmm. um, it's sort of like him talking into a mirror. Um, and he has this back and forth with Sutherland uh, that I just find so fascinating for, for a number of reasons because Churchill's sort of coming to grips with himself and who he is. And this all reaches a a climax in the in the episode that I won't reveal, but I, I do want to point out one part of this discussion, which is where Churchill says that Churchill asserts to Sutherland that no one knows himself better than he does, better than Churchill does, and Sutherland doesn't miss a beat before he says, "In general, I find that people have very little understanding of who they are," and that just upsets Churchill so much <laughs> because it makes him realize, I think maybe he's right, maybe I. Maybe I don't have a good understanding of who I am. Maybe I've, maybe I've passed the point of usefulness for my country. Uh, maybe I'm in this for me and not for the service that I claim. I don't know. There was something very powerful about that line coupled with uh, Churchill's sort of early reflections on art and truth and accuracy that I, I think are useful fodder for discussion here. Just to tag on to that before we dive in, to add to what you just said, Zach, uh, I was listening to an interview uh with a Churchill biographer and the biographer was talking about how Churchill in essence, he crafted his own mythos because he wrote these books about his exploits in world war one. Right. Oh, that's right. That's what his staff member is so captured by. Yes. And so Sutherland's comment to Churchill is so piercing because Churchill crafted his persona. And Sutherland is almost saying, yeah, but ugh, it's not real. It's not real. Exactly. That's, the, that's exactly mm -hmm. the words I was going to use. Yeah, I mean, so Churchill's comment that he doesn't let accuracy get in the way of truth. Yeah, I, I think he's constructed this mythos that may not be accurate. And he sees it as true. And, and maybe a follow-on question is, is it is can something be true without being accurate? I definitely don't like that distinction between real and true. I'd rather that Churchill said mythos or myth or something like that or image or something. I don't know, something other than true because I want the truth to be real. Right. And the real things to be true. Well, he the word was accurate versus true. That's okay. so not not real versus true. Right. Correct. Correct. Because I think there's a lot of things that are not real that are very true. Right. Yeah. Right? Okay. Yeah. So maybe I, okay. Mm -hmm. I guess I still want the true things to be accurate. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. That real is not a good word, but yeah, I, I don't want the true things to not, to be inaccurate. Or I, the... Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know, Jordan, you're an artist. Maybe you can help us break this down a little bit, but I, I, I tend to think of, um, like digital photography, like a, a DSLR camera, you know, cutting edge, state of the state of the art, forty eight megapixels, uh, you know, high end color resolution. It's going to be very true or very accurate. I shouldn't have to be careful with the terms. Very accurate in the color that it recreates. But is it is it fair to say that sometimes you can make a truer image in another way? I don't know. Oh, absolutely, right. So like. People in my industry, uh, I'm a graphic designer and 
photographer and art director, right? Like we, we often use real high fidelity techniques and then degrade them on purpose, right? right? A perfect example of this is even just a simple thing like a, an Instagram filter or a Visco filter right. that people use, right? So a true representation would just to be, to, to, would be to capture that photo and not mess with it at all, right? That's, that's accurate or more accurate than slapping a filter on something. But oftentimes when you make some slight color adjustments on a photo, it, it gives a mood that conveys more truthfully right. what you're trying to convey. Right. And so I think, um, and you, you think about poetry, you think about film, right? Those things aren't necessarily, they might not necessarily be entirely accurate. And even the show might not be completely accurate, but it's hitting those true things that we feel as humans. So I get what Churchill is saying, but in light of how politicians and people in power manipulate facts and truth, it irks me. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. From an art perspective, I love it. Yes. I'm like, yep, yep, Churchill, you're absolutely right. But there's that underlying, there's that underlying thing in the scene where you feel icky because I, you're like, ooh. I, t I totally agree. And I think it's interesting because if you break this down into the two Churchills, right? If you have Churchill, the accomplished impressionist painter, saying that, then okay, check, got it. If you have Churchill, the prime minister, who's eager to write his own mythos into history, then- And that of the crown. And that of the crown, then wait, hold on a second, right? Yeah, maybe to make myself feel better, there's if, – if I need to think of it as like kind of Venn diagrams where accuracy and truth overlap at some point and ideally we find like that perfect relationship between the two of them. But there could be situations where something that's accurate is – I guess that idea of less true or more true rather than not true at all. Yeah, I don't. I don't know if the Venn diagram thing works for me. I almost okay. think of it as like, um, as as overlays, and on the surface, on the you know the top overlay, you have what is accurate, but the problem is that actually the accuracy, what is accurate, sometimes obscures what's underneath it, which is the truth. Ooh, yeah. And so, sometimes by, by. Uh, I think shaping the narrative of what is portrayed, you can you can bring out the elements of the truth so they pop. And I think that's what that's what you do on a on a photograph, right, Jordan? Like you want to highlight certain parts of the photograph, or you want to tell your story through the photograph. And sometimes you have to do that by manipulating a little bit so that what was not previously apparent suddenly becomes so, even if it's even if it's subtle, right? What was previously imperceptible now now becomes approachable by our senses. Yeah, I couldn't say it better. That that's right. So maybe that's Churchill's fatal flaw is that he he wanted to create this this myth of what he th thought was true at the expense of what was accurate. Well, both I with the crown and with himself. I think maybe I need to spoil the the climax of that episode, but so spoiler alert if you haven't seen it. 
stop listening. Tune in. <laughs> tune in. Tune in. Uh, Sixty seconds from now, maybe maybe Churchill's fatal flaw is that he was he was blinded by his own hubris and couldn't see the truth. Because when Sutherland paints his painting that um, that brings out some of the truth that Churchill doesn't like, right? That he's decrepit, etc. He realizes that it's true. He he tells his wife that Sutherland was right. Um, and yet he burns the painting because he can't stand to bear the sight of it. And it's widely considered a lost masterpiece. Yep. Yeah, and then we go back to Jordan's initial point that, wow, the portrayal of Churchill is just so powerful. <laughs> it really is. It's my favorite part of the series. And actually, I think, Jordan, I think that Churchill's a little bit more endearing to me as a result of this conversation because I think, oh, wow, my heart just kind of goes out to him that he needed to burn that painting because I think yeah. if it was me, I would have burned it too. Because right. I don't like to see the ugly parts Churchill. of myself. Yes, yeah, I don't want to see yes. myself decrepit either. Yeah. yeah. And I think the beauty of this show, too, is we are Elizabeth. And we are Churchill. And we are Margaret. And we are Philip. Right? That's true. I mean, I, you're and, totally right. I, I resonate with all of those characters. Yeah, at various points, completely. And that's mm -hmm. the brilliance of the writing of this. Like, I just, I cannot recommend this show enough. Like, it's, it's so powerful. Like I get emotional almost every episode because there's something that like hits me at the core. Mm -hmm. You know, Catherine's laughing because it's true. We were, like, <laughs> we were watching some stuff earlier, uh, even this week. And I was just like, whoa. <laughs> we're unfortunately out of time. But guys, this has been a great conversation. To our listeners out there who have not yet seen the first season, please go and watch the first season of The Crown. Before December 8th. I know December what we're going to all be doing on December 8th. Season 2 <laughs> drops and we're going to be watching it. And uh, we'll have to do maybe like a month or two after we'll have to do a reaction show with you guys again. We'll bring you back on and talk about season two of The Crown and, and have a similar discussion like this one. In the meantime, guys, thanks so much for joining us. Enjoy season two of The Crown on December 8th, and we'll talk to you soon. Right, you've reached the end of another episode of Vernacular. Thank you so much for listening. And we want to give a special shout out to Pavel, who emailed us all the way from Poland, said he loves listening to Vernacular, and he listens to it on the way to and from work while he's riding his bike. And it's one of his that favorite ways so to, cool. to learn about America. So yeah, we sent Pavel an email back. He asked us if he wanted to know about life in Poland that we said definitely. So he's going to join us uh, on an upcoming episode for a lightning round. Wow. And we'll get to chat Fun. with Pavel a little bit about Poland then. So, Pavel, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to uh, chatting with you soon. Yeah, we are very excited. And we love hearing from our listeners. So if you, like Pavel, want to send us a note, you can do that from our website, vernacularpodcast.com. You can also reach out on Twitter at vernacularpod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash vernacularpodcast or on Instagram at, at vernacularpod. Also. <laughs> so reach out any number of ways. We love hearing from listeners. Also give us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite iTunes, favorite podcast app if you haven't. And in the meantime, we will be working on our next episode. Yes, and watching The Crown. That's right, December 8th. Two days. Get ready. Poor Vernacular Podcast. I'm Zach. And I'm Sally. Have a great week. Feeling better than ever. When I'm by